0: This is Recognize, a podcast about the NHL's Black and biracial hockey heroes, proudly supported by eBay Canada. Ever since I was a kid, I collected hockey cards with spare change my dad gave me. As a Black person, to see others like me on the ice inspired me. They were my role models and showed me hockey is a game for everyone. I've collected 100 rookie cards for NHL's black and biracial players and I'm going to talk to all of them so you can learn their stories. As Adams McMorrow,
1: he hasn't got any support, does Adams here now. And good job as McMorrow's, I don't know if he's patting him there and patronizing or what he's doing. And he's having a little bit of fun and he's just being that little showman that McMorrow is. Great job by Adams to step right in. and. Explosive moments here, and you can see Brad Vaughn.
0: Sean McMorrow was born in 1982 in Vancouver. He played for the Buffalo Sabres in the 2002-2003 season and had a long career in the Ontario Hockey League and the American Hockey League. So, Sean, it's great to have you on the podcast.
1: Yes, I, you know what? I'm I'm very, very, very excited. So just bear with me, sir. Bear with me. I'm excited. I'm ready to go.
0: Sure. I'm excited, too. I know all the listeners will want to hear everything about you. So uh, to start out with, we're going to get into a number of things uh, to cover with you, Sean, because I know you have a lot to share. But i first like to just show you this photo. And I, I want to say this is uh, maybe one of your rookie cards, but it's a one rookie card that I found. I want, just want to ask you what comes to mind when you see this rookie card. I believe it's from Buffalo Sabres in 2002.
1: Yes. So the first thing I think about when I see that card, is the moment that i was in when the picture was taken so i didn't get a lot of ice time that game being a fourth liner you know what i'm saying dean so i actually um i actually that picture was taken in warm-up as you see the the chin strap i think is undone so it's in warm-up and i just remember cruising around dean this is my hometown this was saturday night in toronto and I'm cruising around, just absolutely loving life. That's what comes to my mind is just the joy, and 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 all the pride that was probably just going through my veins at that time, sir.
0: Yeah, and Sean, you know how difficult it is for anyone to, um, first of all, play junior hockey, play any version of pro hockey, and to play, I believe it's one NHL game.
1: Was yes, it? one regular. There's still season lots game.
0: of people. Yeah, many people would still die to say they played one regular season game. Not only that, you played your game in Toronto Maple Leaf, uh, well, the Air Canada Centre, which you're someone who grew up in Toronto. So again, if you had to pick any moment, I guess that would be it, wouldn't it? Absolutely,
1: Dean. And like, you know, whenever I'm usually questioned like about the game, like like I like I feel it's important to mention, you know, the way that I grew up, if I wasn't playing myself, and I'm speaking about on a Saturday night, my the, the culture that I had growing up is I would walk over to my grandfather's house, which lived about five minutes away from my mom's, and I would be going over to be watching Hockey Night in Canada. So the cool thing about it is I was guaranteed incredible hot chocolate and Raisin Bran toast. And I just remember looking forward to that, spending time with my grandpa and my great-uncle Frank, and watching Hockey Night in Canada, which was the Toronto Maple Leafs against whatever team that they were playing. So in that picture of that rookie card is warm-up at the Air Canada Centre, now the Scotiabank Arena, Saturday night Hockey Night in Canada. So literally, Dean, it was a dream come true literally for me because that's the way I grew up as a Canadian kid from Scarborough, and and I'm so proud to tell that little tiny story.
0: Yeah. And can you tell us more about that moment? Like, were there uh, family, friends at the game watching, uh, you know, buddies from high school? Like, can you elaborate and tell us more? Yeah.
1: So, you know, the fact that Buffalo is so close to Toronto, I mean, I guess it was a bittersweet. We didn't fly. We didn't fly. We just took a a really nice team bus up to QEW to Toronto from Buffalo. Now I was up, now that call up, I was up for about four days so I got to do a couple of practices with the Sabres. Um, we came the day um, before. So we came Friday night, stayed at the Weston Harbor Castle, which is where most of the uh, visiting NHL teams would stay at the time. I'm not sure if they still do. And my roommate was a gentleman by the name of Curtis Brown, who had become a born again Christian and really, really big character. And, and the guy really took care of me and, was nice to me and i'm I'm very very thankful for that, because the nerves were going but to 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 more answer your question, Dean, I apologize the night before it was kind of cool because I had a couple of my high school friends actually come and visit me. They came to the hotel they picked me up um It was a really cool time. we were all so excited um they made sure they dropped me off like not late or anything because no one wanted to get me in trouble, and then I didn't want to get in trouble because you know this was the opportunity of a lifetime so Um, It was very exciting. So I just remember the day of the game, Dean, in Toronto, you know, we had our we had our morning skate, you know, and then you have your your incredible pregame meal, then you have your pregame nap. And it's, it's a very strict ritual at the pro level on a game day. But when it really hit me, when it really, really hit me, Dean was when I was taping my stick on the bench. Like before warm-up. And there's a time when the referees come and warm up. Like they skate around, get loose and stuff before the players get to. And I just remember one of the refs coming over. and, You know, he gave me a little bit of a smirk. And he came over and he's like, hey, McMorrow, this is your first game, right? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, good luck, kid. I'm so excited for you. I can't wait to see you step on there. And this is an NHL ref. But I just remember thinking to myself, you know what? This is real. This is happening right now. And the pins and needles, Dean, the, the the jitters, whatever you want to call it, man, was at max potential at that point.
0: Thanks for sharing that moment. And uh, I'll ask you a few questions more about that moment later. But let's uh, get back to the cards for a bit here. Do you recall ever collecting cards as a young person or uh, later on in your life?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Great question. I was a big card collector. I I was um I remember the days when there was and I heard that it's coming back so maybe we'll get into that but I remember the days where they used to have businesses that were strictly for for hockey cards mostly I think there was other sports in there but it seemed like it was just hockey cards Dean and there was one rate like I live in a in a part of Scarborough called Highland Creek and in Highland Creek it's a little village and they had a a, a hockey a hockey card store there and I remember just walking over there, man, and being so excited and buying a pack. And then, you know, you you rip the pack open. You're excited to see what you got, but then you get to put it in your binder with, with the plastic little things. And, you know, so then, so I had those, Dean. I had, I had collections. I was a huge fan as I still am.
0: Tell us some of the players that you remember collecting.
1: Well, I was a big Leaf fan, right? Growing up. So I remember like, And my uncles and aunts and relatives used to always give me compliments about how much I knew about the Leafs as a kid. So I made sure that I knew all the Leafs, like their stats, their ages, all that kind of stuff. Um, I was a big Wayne Gretzky fan too, Dean. So I had to make sure that, you know, I always had the Gretzky cards. Um, I remember getting that book, um, Wayne Gretzky Autobiography, where he has the LA Kings jersey. And his hands are out to the side. I forget if he's holding like a stick or something or, or, you know what I mean? But man, I, I, I loved Gretzky. I love Lemieux. I, it, it's either, it's usually it's either you're a Gretzky or Lemieux, but I just love them both because I mean, I was a big guy like Lemieux, you know, we're only a couple inches apart, both right-hand shots, but then Wayne Gretzky, you know what I mean? He's Mr. Mr. Canada hockey man. So if you grow up in Canada watching hockey, you got to love him too. Right. So I I think the Leafs Lemieux Gretzky, you know I was a big Wendell Clark fan, Gary Lehman, guys like
0: that. Do you have any cards today that you've kept? Um, I I, I do
1: I I like it's funny that you asked that because you know uh, I, I'm sure you you know him pretty well, but Mr. Ken Reed from Sportsnet, he's a pretty big card collector as well, and I had him on my show, and he kind of rejuvenated my 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 card love. <laughs> and, I, and I've been finding cards lately, Dean, and it's been funny because I've kind of been putting them aside. So I don't know if, like, deep down, my inner child like wants me to start collecting again. Like, I think that might be what it is. So I I think I might just have to gravitate towards that, And you know. So, so yeah, no, I know I I I do have cards. I'm I'm finding it interesting to try to find my cards these days, Dean, because I've given away so many things over the years that my my collection is is running kind of slim so it'll be funny like i'll be cleaning out like an old box at my mom's house like helping her clear out her house and i'll find a couple of cards dean i'll find a couple of cards from rochester i'll find a, you know what i mean and i'll just be like oh yeah and then i'll yeah. you know i'll put them in the collection trying to stack back up
0: that's exciting so i just want you to have a moment to share with the listeners then um Again, the area you grew up in Scarborough and talk about some of the early moments in terms of when you remembered skating for the first time and who supported you.
1: Right on Well, I mean, my my hockey story um pretty pretty much starts when when my parents split up. Um, we all lived in Vancouver. My parents moved out to Vancouver in the 70s when that city was was getting built up. They both had job opportunities. When I was six years old, my mom moved me and my my sister and my two brothers back to Scarborough. And she got us involved in hockey right off the hop, Dean. And my sister, myself, and Patrick all got started. I was six. You know, Kat was nine. Pat was only three years old. We started at Scarborough, Malvern. And we started Scarborough, Malvern House Leagues. Dean, I remember my mom tells me that the first time I went on the ice, you know, I didn't like it at all. I was whining and crying. I was just pushing with one leg and, you know, I was whining and crying and my mom was like, you know, you know, the parents are usually paying attention when the kids first get out there. And, you know, she was kind of worried. And then all of a sudden a coach Dean just came up to me and said, Hey, Sean, can you help me organize these pucks over here? And that distraction and that someone needing me and just trumped all the nervousness and uncomfortableness. And I just went on, my mom said and participated in practice and, and the rest is history,
0: Dean. That's remarkable that you remember that moment, though, like so long ago. Oh, yeah. And you remember yeah. that as being like the defining moment. But right?
1: what helps me, Dean, is this season, I, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't know if this is going to be one of your questions, but, you know, the fact that I started coaching with Seaside Hockey this year, the arenas are Scarborough Malvern and Commander Park Arena. And those were my first two arenas that I started at. So it brings back a lot of memories, and this year I think the the nostalgia, the nostalgia, if I'm saying that right, Dean, was pro- is probably been at its greatest peak for hockey this year because of me starting to coach and and rejuvenating all that joy for the game I'm in.
0: Yeah, that's great to hear. So uh, when did you know that uh, you were good this game? Walk us through a little bit further along from starting as a six-year-old to 16 years older.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. So, 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 I mean, all these parts are so exciting for me, so I don't mind talking about any part of it. So now let's fast forward to 16. So 16 years old was when I graduated from the Don Mills Flyers AAA because that was my minor hockey with Don Mills every year except for one year with Wexford. And it was the year before I was going to the OHL, Dean, and I got the opportunity to play for the Pickering Panthers, Tier 2 Junior A, right after Vanham. So I didn't play midget, went straight to Tier 2. I was right on the path of anybody that's going to get a D1 scholarship or that's going to get drafted to the OHL, right on that path. And the great thing about Pickering, Dean, is that that team, I was a 16-year-old rookie. It was when I first um, accepted the role of the enforcer. It's when I first realized that that was the role that I would have to play if I wanted to make it to the next level. Um, it was also a year that I I have never been, I don't think, closer to a group of guys. Uh, the team camaraderie was very, very good, and I think it really helped me. My progression that year, um, get drafted to the OHL. Just the confidence, um, just the, the the comfort level of knowing that you're friends with everybody on the team. You know, sometimes being different, Dean, as you know, growing up. Um, you know, being the only person of ethnicity on the team, or you know, sometimes sometimes there's there's times in your career growing up in minor hockey where it, it might be a little thing, but Sometimes those little things are really hard to get over when you're younger, but when you're in a situation where you feel love from every single person, that's a very strong thing, and that can really influence you know, a player's career and, and make them perform even better than they probably would have in the first place.
0: Yeah, and I want to give you um, credit for what you said about identifying the role because I just want you to share with the listeners what type of a player you you were, and then maybe when you just shifted your role, yeah, could you share that with us? Yeah,
1: so I mean, yeah, so growing up, growing up, I, I was always the biggest kid on my team. So I I, I want the listeners to know that because it's, it's it's understandable. The rest of what I'm going to say. If, if if you know that I was always the biggest person on the team. So growing up, I'm this big stay-at-home defenseman. Um, I actually I actually became a pretty, pretty good player, Dean. Like I was one of the top defensemen in my age group growing up, got to the tier two level, uh, was still like for a 16-year-old being on a tier two team. You know, I was in the top four D, had a really good shot from the point, could skate backwards like a champion. And, you know, I got drafted. In the second round, 33rd overall to the Sarnia Sting, right? So, I mean, I was a pretty high draft pick to the OHL, yeah. and that's because I could play the game. Now, mind you, being six foot four, I don't know what my weight was at the time. I, I, my playing weight was 225. At that age, I was probably closer to 200. But being six foot four, 200 pounds, when you're 16, 17 years old, you know, when someone – when there's a role to be taken for an enforcer role, for a role um, – an and energy guy role, whatever you want to call it, th- there, was a, there was a spot on a team, on every team at that year. Now, we're, we're talking back in 1999 at this point. Pickering Panthers was 1999. Uh, my first year in the OHL was the year 2000. And so at that time, you know, fighting was a big part of the game in hockey still. Um, It was a big, it it was, there was a big role on every team. Usually there was two guys that would actually take care of the role. And when I was 16 years old, Dean, um, my coaches came to me and they had told me that they thought I was a really tough kid, that there was a role in the team that needed to be filled. And that they were asking a couple players if they would, if they thought that they were, could fill that role. So. I mean, here I am, 16 years old, very confident at the time, um, very happy kid at the time. So I'm thinking that I can take on the world. So my coaches are asking me if I want to throw down. I'm like, yeah, I'll try it out. Of course I will. <laughs> so how it went, Dean, was was actually, I mean, I don't think I was surprised. I think I was I was more shocked in a very good way because the first time I did it, Dean, I was 1-0. The second time I did it, I was two and zero. The third time I did it, I was three and zero. We could all guess what the pattern is going to be, right? So the point I'm trying to make is, I became extremely successful at something, at something that was supposed to help me further my career in hockey. And if that was the case, I was all about it because what came out of it was respect from my teammates, was praise from my coaches, and was also all of the above from the fans or anybody in the stands. And what that does to a 16, 17-year-old kid is give them confidence that that nobody could even understand. And in order to make the pros, you have to believe that you're the best person, that you're the best player. Because if you don't have that mindset, there's not even a chance of you being there. So that combination with that role, the confidence that it gave me I continued going with it. My mom covered her eyes for the first couple of years. My family, it took them a while to get adjusted to it. But once it became normal, it kind of was like, instead of my family being scared and worried for me, it turned into, well, what's the best way we can help them prepare? Right? So it took a couple of years to get to that point but that's what it came to. It was more like I was a, a professional boxer and I was preparing and okay, so is he healthy? Is he eating right? You know, how are his hands? Like that was kind of the talk and treatment that I would get throughout my career. I found it very interesting.
0: Yeah, Thanks for sharing that insight because it kind of gives us an inner look into the transformation of what goes on. Like uh you were you are an energy person, a great scared growing up and all that. And then as you say, you have to make a decision and you're getting this reinforcement in a positive way, right? From coaches, fans and all that, and the confidence that you need. So that that's quite interesting. Um, now, I, I, I could see at a certain point in time, did that deter you from focusing on other skills in terms of this confidence? Like- Could you have taken a different path and said, you know what, maybe I want more of a balanced role, but you were getting all this reinforcement, right?
1: Yes. So when I turned pro, I was only 20 years old and I was on a three-year NHL entry level contract with Buffalo Sabres. So how those contracts work, it doesn't matter if you're the first overall pick or if you're an eighth rounder like myself, they're all two-way contracts. So there's an NHL salary and there's an AHL salary. Now, You would think that the AHL would be the big disappointment, but in actual fact, it's actually a great spot to be that there's a lot of players that are drafted and signed that get sent down below the AHL. They go to the East Coast Hockey League, they go to the Federal League, they go to the United League. Like you would be surprised. Guys that you know pretty big signing bonuses are in like the third league instead of the AHL. So to be able to stay at the AHL level for a professional. You're proud of yourself. Obviously, you want to be in the NHL. That's your dream. But the AHL is kind of like it's kind of like the line where you can make an actual living out of hockey. When you're in the coast, you have to get a job in the summer. You didn't make enough during the season to be able to pay for training, support your family without, be, without getting a paycheck in the summer. But in the AHL, you can. So if you can stay at that level, then just mentally – you know that you're providing for yourself and your family. You're not lending from money from family in the summer. Oh, don't worry. I'll pay you when hockey starts. And you're not doing that. You're able to provide for yourself. Now, the NHL, that's the show. So that's where you really, really want to be. And it's such a thin line, Dean. It's such a thin line. Like I played with guys that were dominant in the OHL, top scorers on the walls in OHL arenas, and they didn't even get a sniff in the AHL. Not even a sniff. So the fact that I was able to be drafted, sign an NHL contract, be an AHL player, I knew that that was my way that I got there. Now, the question is, where the problem laid was, from my first year, the role was declining. The unfortunate thing with me is that my third year was the NHL lockout year. That was the 04 05 season. Okay. My third year pro. My first year pro was 2002 2003. So that season, my third year, was my best year. I finally started putting some pucks in the net. I think I had like three goals, three assists, six points. The two years before that, I had zero and one point. So here I am, starting to score, you know, put up a little bit of numbers, you know, not really. Still in the top five of all the enforcers in the league, penalty minutes, maintaining all that, but no opportunity to get called up because it was a strike all year long, Dean. That year, I won the most improved player for the Rochester Americans, which is probably an award that I'm most proud of because, in order to get that, your coaches have to all like you. They all have to all believe in you. And they all have to vote your name in order for you to get that award. I think McMorrow improved the most. Yeah, so do I. Oh, definitely McMorrow. What do you think, video coach? I'd say McMorrow. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they all have to agree, man. And and the thing is, is that that's probably one of the biggest things when, when guys play pro. If you were to ask 100 players, what do you think the biggest... Reason why you thought you didn't have the best career? Oh, my coaches! This coach hated me. That coach. You know what I mean? It's the coaches control everything. So if you're on the good side of your coaches, you know you're doing something right. Not only did you play well, but you're acting proper. You're representing the team well. There's a lot of different components to to getting an award like Most Improved Player. They're not going to give it to someone that's a that's an a hole. They're not going to give it. You know what I mean? So. I was so and 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 Dean, I gotta stop saying that line. You know what I mean, because I'm in the public speaking now, and that's one of the no nos. So, I'm gonna correct myself that time, and I'm sorry, okay. ladies and gentlemen. That's, fun. that's I have fun. to recognize I you it. though, Dean. I'm I'm really getting okay. into it. So,
0: yeah, that's right. You're doing great. <laughs> so, let's let's shift a little bit to the cultural, racial, yeah. uh, identity piece. Toronto was increasingly uh, multicultural when you're growing up. Probably around the early uh, mid '90s, I guess you're playing your minor hockey. Yep,
1: yeah. Um, Like I was in grade eight, '96, so that was my TV year. So yeah, yeah. so tell us,
0: were you? Did you get to play with some other um, black players or other racialized players growing up, and maybe share some names with us? Yeah, players You played with. I
1: had. I was blessed to be a part of the Don Mills Flyers organization, as I mentioned before. So now I'm in 1982 birthday. The legend Trevor Daly is one year younger than me. He's in 1983, also played for Don Mills. So now Daly, Daly was so talented. He was so good, Dean, that he would get called up to my team, the AAA team that's one year older, and he was the best defenseman. I got to play with him because he was a left shot and I was a right shot. And I'm telling you right now, I, I knew this guy was going to play in the NHL. His skating stride had nothing wrong with it at all. It was almost like he didn't even touch the ice. Paul Coffey was good. Trevor Daly, if, if you put video side by side of Trevor Daly wheeling around the net and Paul Coffey wheeling around the net, I'm telling you, man, Trevor's gonna look smoother. The kid was unbelievable, Dean. So I got to play with Trevor a couple summer tournaments. Um got to meet Trudy, his, his wonderful mother. Um, got to meet his father, got to meet his sisters. This is when we were like, this is when we were like kind of 10, 11, 12, like we were really young. You know what I'm saying? There it is again, Dean. You know what I'm saying? I gotta cut that line out. It was, um, it was a blessing to play with Trevor Daly. I had him on my show probably about four or five months ago. And I think that Trevor is probably one of the nicest people on this planet, most humble human beings. He's an incredible father and just such a good role model. And people really need to know that. Two-time Stanley Cup champion, Scarborough kid. Just just incredible, man. Can't say enough about Trevor. Uh, Joel Ward is two years older than me. He's a 1980 birthday. Also played for Don Mills. And I didn't get to play with Joel, but I got to practice with him. Uh, he also just lived about five minutes from my mom's house where his mom lived on Military Trail in Scarborough. The high school I went to in grade nine was kind of right across the street from where his mom lived. I went to Pope John Paul II. And uh, yeah, so Joel Joel and and Trevor, I had personal relationships with growing up. And I think that those two are probably two of the best role models uh, that the NHL has ever seen. So I I feel very, very lucky.
0: It's important to, to point out just that critical mass. I know, again, I've, I've referenced this before, how Toronto's always been multicultural. But that critical moment where you're seeing these players emerge like yourselves in that era, and you know these players very well. And and we see this, this growth. I know everyone's saying that uh, we want to have more and more uh, – players racialized. But I just wanted to make note of that. That's that's pretty special that you've had that experience.
1: The other thing I wanted to mention, Dean, is, uh, is Spence Curtin. Spence Curtin is a black gentleman. He's been a coach for a very, very long time. He coached Joel Ward when Joel played at Don Mills. And now that I'm doing my team mentoring and I'm and I played for the Don Mills Flyers organization for five years, I reached out to them and I really wanted to do a team mentoring session with Don Mills. And Spence called me back, said it would be an honor. I didn't even realize the man was still coaching. And you know, Shamar Moses, who's gonna be a name that a lot of people are gonna be hearing soon, who's the captain of that under 16 Don Mills Flyers team that just finished their season, Uh, You know, he's he's a kid that's that's going to be representing black hockey players for the next generation. Shamar Moses. Um, The kid's an incredible prospect. Um, I'm hoping to have him on my show next week. And uh, I got to do a team mentoring session with his U16 team and Spence Curtin um, set that up for me. And it's really cool when you have people that are from your roots that you meet later down the line that 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 set you up and it's kind of like how it's worked with the old boys club for the past hundreds of years but it's really cool to to really go through that type of an experience so i you know i want to thank spence curtain shamar moses and the the whole team for having me out
0: that's very kind of you to share that so there, that's been some really great stuff for you to share with your uh childhood and i just Again, I want to emphasize for listeners just to show how um, um, how much of an impact you you've made in that era. So then, tell us a little bit about the OHL experience between uh, the teams I've listed here. You played for were Sarnia. Kitchener, Mississauga, Kingston, London, Oshawa. Yeah. I, don't I don't know if I got the time right order for you to mention all those teams. <laughs> that's right. So maybe just—that's <laughs> true. So that—that's something in itself. Someone's be able to say you've got—you could have a jersey from all those OHL teams. Like that's okay. That's special.
1: So there is a good highlight.
0: There is a good
1: explanation for that, my friend. So now, I had a great experience in the OHL. Uh, it was—I love talking about it. It was three years of my life that I think really really helped my development as a man as a as a as a go-getter as as anybody that any type of controversy or, or anything i think it's helped me kind of battle through things in life and i'll explain why um as anybody knows you know the kids that play in the ohl they have to move away from home at a very young age and some of them have to go pretty far i mean for myself You know, I was 17 years old, uh, the regular rookie age. There is two underagers on each team that are 16, but I was 17. And I was entering my grade 12 year and had to move to Sarnia, Ontario. Right. So Sarnia, Ontario is a lot different from Toronto. Sarnia, Ontario has about 50,000 people. Uh, Sarnia, Ontario, you know, it's kind of it's kind of a border town. It's right on the border, close to Port Huron. And, you know, it's a blue collar town and, you know, a lot of farming community in, in the surrounding areas. You know, you got Woodstock, you got Petrolia, stuff like that. And so it's uh, it, it it was it was quite the experience, Dean. I mean, the high school I went to, I think, had about three or four uh, black students. It was uh, it was it was very cool to be part of a pro- professional organization the OHL teams run like professional teams it's like that it's like that it's like the NHL for teenagers right uh the crowds they get are are pretty cool you know some teams get up to 9 10,000 you know the Sarnia Sting Arena was pretty new at the time pretty cool facility i think it seated about 7500 and you know they would sell it out on a on a friday night Dean. and you know so a 17 year old that is used to going from maybe fifty or sixty people in the in the stands, you know, to seven thousand five hundred. So there, there's like a part. There's like a there's like a, a a part of the year where you're kind of getting used to playing in front of the crowds. Because you go up, warm up, and sometimes you're just like, oh my God, what's going on? Like you, you know, you're you're so overwhelmed. So, and and then of course that gets your nerves, and then it it affects your game. So like sometimes the first you know handful of games for junior players, you know, it's just getting used to the big crowds, Dean, and and like and like. So I was brought in there to be a tough defenseman. Um, Mark Hunter drafted me. Mark Hunter's known as a hard nosed guy, loves his tough guys. Um, he let me know that I was the guy from 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 the get go, and you know I had to take on some pretty tough twenty year olds, twenty one year olds, overagers. You know I was seventeen, um, grew up pretty quickly. Had to had to live with a family that I'd never met before in Sarnia, Ontario. You know they had two daughters, one son. You know I, and and I had to adapt to that, uh, which I did. Um, and I think when kids go through experiences like that. I mean, what would be a bigger challenge for a 17-year-old kid than move four hours away with a family that he's never met before, have to practice every single day in a pro mentality, and oh, wait till you hear this. So the, one of the greatest things about Mark Hunter is he was very strict with the educational part of of the, of the system. So we're all in high school, Dean. So when we got to practice after after school, he would have every single teacher fax our attendance to the coach's room so when we walked in that dressing room he knew if we missed the class or not and you could probably guess what would happen to you if you did miss the class oh man you better hope that your skates are sharpened because you are going to be doing laps my friend you are not going to be playing the next game and your life is miserable probably for the next 36 to 48 hours so the, the 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 positive thing about that, Dean, is most kids don't do well in school because they don't go. When I was in Sarnia, I remember when the first semester finished and I got my report card, I put it right on the right on the fridge when I got home for Christmas break. Because not only were they not 60s or 70s. They were 80s and 90s, Dean, because I went to every single class and it was the best I ever did in school while I was in the OHL, while I was doing that professional scheduling, simply because I went to every class. And I just wish that every OHL team would have that mentality because if they did... Then the OHL players wouldn't get this rep of, oh, he didn't finish high school. Oh, he's just an OHL player. He's not serious about education. But yeah, a lot of them are Dean. They just have a dream of playing in the NHL and that's
0: their best route. If you're enjoying Recognize and thinking about starting your own hockey card collection, I'd suggest you start with eBay. Uh, uh. eBay is all about connecting communities and fueling passions. Because of its thriving card collector community, I was able to make my dream come true by collecting the rookie cards of the NHL's black and biracial players. Start your own collection at ebay.ca slash hockey cards. So, um, touch on then just the movement from the teams then.
1: Okay, what, so, yeah, so yeah, yeah, so sorry, I, I stalled there, buddy. I think I'm, I was trying to get out of it, thought you might forget. So, so I was just joking. So, yeah. so. I got so Mark Hunter, here's a little backstory that some hockey people might appreciate, so the Sarniest thing at the time were owned by everybody remembers Dino Cicerelli on Detroit Red Wings, Tampa Bay Lightning, guy that would that stand in front of the net and just couldn't be moved in front of the net, right? So Dino has two brothers, so there's the three Cicerelli brothers. And they own the Sarniest thing. So now it's well known in the hockey world that Dino Cicerelli and Mark Hunter don't like each other. They butt heads all the time, right? But Dino was still playing and stuff when his brothers and him had started buying the team. So he wasn't really involved in day-to-day operations. I don't think he even knew that Mark Hunter was the GM and coach. So now Dino's finished his career. He's retired. Now wants a bigger role with him and his brother's business. And you know, our team wasn't wasn't meeting expectations by Christmas time. So Dino, I think, was was a big influence in getting Mark Hunter fired. So Mark Hunter gets, gets, gets the ax when we're at home during Christmas, we all get back from the Christmas break and there's a big meeting saying that Mark was the coach and GM so that he was, that he was no longer with us, that, you know, there was going to be some changes, blah, blah, blah. Half the team got traded because they were all Mark's handpicked guys, right? Which I was one of them. I get traded to Kitchener Rangers. Kitchener Rangers, probably one of the greatest experiences ever. I was only there for a half season. Um, But that was the team that I was actually playing for when I got drafted to the NHL because it was the second half of the year I got drafted to the NHL that summer. So Kitchener, which probably had about double the amount of rookies that Sarnia had, again, the same type of camaraderie with the Pickering Panthers is what I had with the Kitchener Rangers. And I think that that really helped me, enabled me to get drafted, Dean, and, and it was a really big part of it. But we're talking about these teams. So here's where it gets interesting. Mr. Don Cherry, Grapes, one of my mentors, he was still owning the Mississauga Ice Dogs. So now at this time, it was Mississauga's third year in the league. The first year, I think they won like one or two games. The second year, I think they won like one or two games. So now they were like, okay, so we're just going to overload this team with more toughness and we're just going to run everybody out of the rink. I don't know what they thought, but... But they had me, they had Brian McGratton, they had they had all these guys, right, that were like big, tough guys. And But again, it wasn't working for Junior.
0: It wasn't working
1: for Junior. You can't do that with 16, 17, 18-year-olds. It just doesn't work. Maybe in pro it could work, broad street bullies, whatever. But Junior doesn't really work. Me and Don joke about it all the time now. So now I'm on Mississauga. Rick Vibe is our coach, who I get along with incredibly now. Hated him at that time. We had three wins or two wins at Christmas time. So what do you think is going to happen? Jason Spezza was on our team. This is when he was up. It was either him or Kovalchuk for the first overall pick. Spezza's agent is Bobby Orr. Bobby Orr is like, look, man, you're not going to get picked first overall if you're on a team that wins two games. Okay? So we need to trade you, right? They trade him to Windsor. Windsor trades 10 players for Spezza. (laughs) So obviously everyone's got to get traded again. So now everybody knows that the Mississauga Ice Dogs is going to be a revolving door because it's this big spezza train. So now the Hunters have now bought the London Knights, okay, and are trying to acquire me from Mississauga. Mississauga wouldn't do it. I don't know. They thought Hunters weren't offering enough. So I got traded to Kingston. I was in Kingston for about two weeks, and then the Hunters got me from Kingston. So I played for three teams, Dean, in a span of probably about three or four weeks. You know what I'm saying? Like Kingston. There you go can again. See that there? Yeah. Edit it out. Kingston was about two weeks. Miss Sarnia, Kitchener, Mississauga, Kingston, London. All in the first two years. Right?
0: Well, you really need to keep focused with your education then. Hopefully the other teams were like Sarnia because you have been <laughs> with one class for a few weeks and then another class another month. And
1: exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I ended up I ended up being in London. Started, it was now my third year, starting the year in London, and I had this reputation, Dean, where now they were saying, oh, McMorrow, he's the heavyweight champion of the OHL, right? But the knock on me was that the Hunters were just giving me the tap, and I was just going out there and taking care of business, wasn't playing a regular shift, wasn't proving that I could play at the next level. Now, the Hunters are really big supporters of mine. They still are to this day, Dale and Mark. They're still both in London. And so the Oshawa Generals had Brian McGrattan. Brian McGrattan's name always comes up in my stories. So Brian McGrattan's in the Oshawa Generals. He gets into a big fight with George Burnett, the coach there, flips the desk in the coach's room. Was, and then they're just like, okay, this guy's this guy's gotta leave now. Like that's too much, right? So they trade him to Owen Sound. They need they need a big body that can play in front of the net that could also take care of that role that McGrattan was having for Oshawa. So the Hunters, to my, to, my, like, like to my advantage, for them wanting what's best for me, they trade me to Oshawa. Oshawa is fighting for a playoff spot. London was out of a playoff spot. Oshawa was going to put me on the third line, put me in front of the net, and, and if I could earn it, was going to give me some PP time. So what, what better of a situation for a guy that has a half season left before he has to sign his NHL deal and has to prove that he can play at the next level. So I ended up getting traded there, playing on the third line, Dean, getting the power play time. I scored a hat trick against the Peterborough Pets, man. Could you imagine what that did for my confidence? Could you imagine what the Sabres thought when they're like, Jesus Christ, sorry about the, about the curse? Jeez, McMorris scored a hat trick last night. They said he, he couldn't even play it. You know what I mean? Like, so it helped me so much. We made the playoffs. We played Jason Spezza now with the Belleville Bulls, and and we ended up winning Game One of the playoffs team. We ended up losing in five games. We got swept the next four games. But yours truly scored the the, the, the game winner <laughs> in Game One somehow. And you know, all these things combined, Dean, was enough for Buffalo to to give me the entry level opportunity. I proved that I could play. I was having fun again. I was still winning all my fights and, and I was ready for the next level. And it was such an incredible time, Dean. I like I'm I'm getting goosebumps even talking about
0: it. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that journey, because it shows like each of those experiences is a bit of a stepping stone and the fact that matter that the style you played, you were in demand as part of some of all these trades, right? So that, that's really neat. Great. Uh, so Buffalo drafted eighth round. Yes. Uh, can you tell us about, did you attend the draft? Where was it? Did you, did you, were you in person? Were you at home?
1: Good, I, I love your style, Childhood. man. I, I, I try to be the same way. So thank you for asking. Um, the draft was in 2000. At the time, I was represented by a gentleman by the name of Mike Gillis. Um, The same Mike Gillis that was the the general manager of the Vancouver Canucks a few years back, and I'm not sure what he's doing now, but he had a rule, Dean, that if you weren't rated in the first three rounds of the NHL draft, and you were one of his clients, you weren't going. The reason for that was simply because in the past, he would have players that, like myself, like I was rated in the seventh round, it was a nine-round draft. There's no guarantee you're going to get picked. So a player like me, there's a big risk that he's not going to get picked. My draft was in Calgary, Alberta. So if I go to Calgary, Alberta, I bring my whole family, my friends. I'm all excited. This is my dream. You know, I've always wanted this. And then, boom, I don't get picked. It could absolutely devastate my confidence. Maybe I'll never be the same. Like, trust, like, mental health now. Like, it's crazy, right? So so anyway, so that was his rule. And you know, I wasn't really happy about it, but 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 that's what I did. And and he told me or sorry, he told me to stay home, have a barbecue with the family, stick close to the phone, and and get ready for a call. And and so that's exactly what I did, Dean. And it was it was it was great. It was a really good time. It was really there was a lot of tension, a lot of nervousness. And then all of a sudden, you know, that phone rang. So, you know, my mom grabs it and she's like, here, 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 here. And so I answer it. And, you know, it was a gentleman by the name of Mr. Don Luce, who was the director of player personnel. And he just said, Hey, Sean, I'm Don loose. Uh, congratulations. You know, we've just selected you in the eighth round. Uh, we're going to be calling you back in about 10 minutes with more, more details for, for training camp. But I just want to say, congratulations, whatever. So the phone hangs up and it was, woo, woo, you know, and and the the celebration began and, you know, there's probably about fifteen or twenty people here. It was it was really, really cool. You know, I, I saw a bunch of tears in the room and 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 you know, like like the way that I look at it, Dean, I, I talk about this a lot on my show, is is I find that the NHL draft is like a family accomplishment. Um, and the reason why I say that is, you know, if you think about it, I mean the player's eighteen years old. So like unless they were an underager, if they were like me, they'd only been away from home for that one season to this point. The college guys aren't even gone yet. And you know what I mean? The the, <laughs> the family is with the player through and through throughout his whole career up to that point. And I just find that the NHL draft is like a corporation that recognizes we are selecting your son. We're going to give him an opportunity to go to the next level. It is up to him from this point. But we just want to recognize all the blood, sweat, and tears that your family has done to give him the opportunity to get to this point. Congratulations. That's just the kind of the way that I look at it. Um, When I ask players about it, they agree. Um, A lot of them have never thought of it like that, but I just think that the families are so involved to that point, Dean, and hockey is such a big commitment, time, money, everything else. The families need that credit, and I think you should give the credit when credit's due.
0: Well, yeah, thanks for sharing that special moment because although you weren't there you know, it still was, it was a big deal. And the way you described it was amazing in terms of just, I don't know, did you watch on TV? Then you got the phone call. Were you watching? Yeah.
1: The first day of the NHL draft is usually like round one, two, and three. And then they have like a second day for the rest. So, so the first day was televised. I definitely watched that. I don't think they televised the second day, but they just kind of like, they were like, Oh, live from the arena. I think we, Already had two rounds so far, and you know, they might like it's, it's like that kind of coverage. Uh yeah, so it was the internet was a little bit slow at that time. I remember my my stepdad, you know, he, he he had the computer downstairs and they were like a couple rounds behind. So when it got to like the sixth round, I was thinking, man, the draft's probably over, man. It's like a couple rounds behind. I didn't get drafted. You know what I mean And then the phone goes right So yeah, it was awesome, yeah. Dina. I'll never forget it. I love it when I'm asked so so thank you, buddy. I appreciate it's it special <laughs> moment,
0: yeah. so before I get into um life of yours after hockey, um just maybe share with us the role you play as a as enforcer or fighter throughout your career, Meyer leagues. This is not an easy role. Um, what was it like having that this responsibility game after game? And have you had any impacts, positive or negatively? from um, from this experience yeah. in hockey?
1: Great question. I believe that I had an advantage over the other tough guys because I was able to kind of create this character. Now, the character ended up turning into the sheriff, but I didn't really create the sheriff until about halfway through my career. So from my first year, I always believed that I was a character, like a superhero type of character. Now, when I would come to the ring, I would enter my character. I would always want to, you know, talk to everybody, pretend that I was kind of like, I guess like the president in a way, like walking in and I oh, yeah, how's everybody going? Yes, handshakes, you know, the, the pictures with the babies and you know, doing all this stuff and just having fun and then and then getting to the podium and hello people like you know what i mean like i, I almost felt like i was like the president Then, so i would get in there and then so the way i looked at it is and and, and when, when the sheriff was created it was a lot easier to talk about this because then i'd be like the sheriff includes this type of package right so the way that i look at it is i'd come to the rink i'd want anybody to approach to ask me questions i wanted to be the number one fan player there so my responsibility and what i represented was my city my team and my fans so i looked at it like it was like a like a militant type thing i was like the president or like the head of an army and and i represented all these people so i had all of them behind me i had all the pride of representing all of them and all i had to do was just put this little pug down and the mission was completed. <laughs> so I would just—I don't know—I think I looked at it a different way. And then once the sheriff character started, man, it was—it was. It was I, I think it helped me so much more. Gave me so much more confidence, so much more power. Um, it's a—it br- was a brutal role, Dean. To answer your question. Um, when it comes to injuries, your hands will be sore. Sometimes you—you you get into fights, and you—you you wouldn't even really like you you would throw a punch but you would do it so your hand wouldn't even really hit it would be like your forearm because your hands were so sore that you couldn't even do it there'd be times where you're you're so sore your shoulder your shoulder's sore your 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 wrist is sore your arm is sore and it's a 5-1 game and you've played pretty well you know maybe you fought already and you know and it's 5-1 and And all of a sudden, there's a hit from behind and it's like, oh, my God, I got to go out there and send the message now because our guy just got hit from behind. So then it's like, you know, so then you're looking at the clock and there's like 30 seconds left, 29 seconds left. And then you're like, okay, well, maybe the time will just run out. And then, oh, someone just shot it over the glass whistle. okay, McMorrow. (laughs) It's like, you know, so. The other players don't have to worry about stuff like that. The other players, you know, if they're hurt, they can say to the trainer, you know what? I'm, I'm not really feeling that well. Maybe, maybe I need to go to the room. But when you're the tough guy, you can't do stuff like that. What are the, what, What's the rest of the team gonna think when the toughest guy in the team is walking to the dressing room because he doesn't feel well? Like, you know what I mean? So you got to take, you got to take, you got to take a responsibility of being braver, tougher, and more willing to do things that the other players aren't willing to do that's probably the key to the role player is doing the things that nobody wants to do. And if you're willing to do that, then you're going to be welcomed with open arms because every team will want you.
0: Yeah. And you've had a lengthy career doing that. And I know I'm just playing, uh, you know, men's league hockey right now, but I, I'm looking at your, uh, your uh, career here and the LNAH. Tell us about that and tell us you're still fighting in that league. And I see minutes, up For you for 2019 20. So, yeah, yeah. You're, you were so you'd be LNH, still at it.
1: The LNAH was a Quebec senior league that was. Now, now we, we all have to understand that this region of the country is a little bit different from the rest of the country. Now, I'm not just talking about the language, I'm talking about the culture. So, now the culture of Quebec is they love their combat sports, they just love it, man. They love the boxing. They love their MMA. GSP, George St-Pierre, that guy, most popular man in Quebec, hands down. Doesn't matter what Montreal Canadian you say. George St-Pierre, they just love it. They love it. So now you're going to have a league represented by all the towns in Quebec, 8, 10, 12 teams in the league at times. Every team's got a couple tough guys. These tough guys represent the town. Now you got the locals coming to the rink. They're doing their pre-drinking. They're all celebrating. They're all buddies. And they have a hero, a hero to to cheer on that they know is going to go to battle every single game. That's how they look at it. It's completely different. Of course, the main main point of the game is to score more goals than the other team. (laughs) But they have a part of their game in this league it's called Le Show. So Le Show, the show, is the part of the game where the fights are. So now this is what a lot of people, they find intriguing, because this is literally how it works. Every single team, now I'm talking about the years that I played there. 2019, the number that I say five is now down to one or two now in 2019. This is 2007, 2008, when I, when I got that record for most fights in a year, all that time time period. Every team had five fighters. They would rank the fighters from one to five. So he's the number one, he's the number two, so on and so forth. I was the number one for my team. I would only fight the number one on the other team. The number two only fights the number two. And, and, and it's, it's incredible how everybody knows who's, who's what. I don't know if it was written down in special little notepads. I don't know how everybody knew, but they knew. So it could be the beginning of the game. It could be after the first goal. It could be to start the second period. Nobody knows when it's going to happen, but it happens. The show will happen. So if that is guaranteed that you're going to get five pretty brutal, like entertaining fights, you're with all your boys, you're half in the bag. You're, you're, you know what I mean? Like you're, like it, It's like a celebration. It's like a going to a boxing match slash hockey game. And then you got you got two lines of scorers, a checking line, and then the fourth line was all tough guys. And then you would have four or five pretty good defensemen, and then that sixth defenseman would be a tough guy too, right? So every team would have four or five guys. Then teams like the Chiefs, they would have like six or seven guys, right? And then that kind of made it ridiculous. But the tough guys were the highest paid guys on the team, if you were a guy like myself that came from the AHL to that league, you were making a thousand dollars a game minimum. You were also getting a signing bonus. So now if you're a guy that's playing in the coast, that's making six fifty, maybe if you're lucky, seven hundred a week. Okay, you're in some little dinky town. Apologize if anyone gets offended by that, in the States, a little, a little, little town in Texas. Your roommate's kind of weird. Your family's upset that you're not home every, every night. You're calling your wife. You got a kid. You're, you're almost 30. You, make, you know what I mean? It's a very difficult life for those hockey players. So now, if you're from Quebec, why don't you make, instead of making your 700 a week, why don't you make your 700 a game, playing two games a week, okay? Living, playing for a team that's a half an hour from where you live, so you can live at home, you only have one or two practices a week. It's just a better option for some of the players because the salary cap in the LNAH is the same salary cap as the ECHL now. So any players from that region, some of them are choosing to stay in Quebec as opposed to playing in that little town in Texas that they don't like their roommate and they're in this little apartment and just, just not a good setup and they're not going anywhere because they're in the coast. They're just doing it to make a living at the time. Right? So it's very interesting dynamics and I I had a really good experience playing there. Um, There's some crazy, crazy stories from like fight fans that want to know certain things, but at the end of the day, the guys were all really cool. It's all players that played major junior and stuff. So they all speak English. Um, A lot of guys, um, they play in that league if their careers are are winding down and, um, and yeah, the league's getting better and better. It's more skilled. I think now there's like one tough guy on each team. So you still see it, but it's, but it's a lot more regular hockey. And, uh, and yeah, it's, uh, well, that's, it's, that's, it's, uh, I, it's, uh, the, the, the I, Quebecois league.
0: I bet not many people are aware of that. Um, uh, so I, I now, um, so just want to cover a few more things, your, um, experience with racism, any, um, tough situations you dealt with any moments you want to highlight in terms of people that were in your corner and advocated for you. Could be any time period. Could be pro minor hockey.
1: Yeah, I. When I'm asked about this, Dean, the, the best way for me to talk about it is the experiences that I had growing up. I was lucky that I was part of that Don Mills team, which was the same core of guys from when I was nine to when I was 15. So now, what I can tell you is that I've noticed that society and sports coincide a lot when they change. And what I mean is like, you know, 20 years ago, if a parent smacks their kid, you know, people are like, "Uh," you know, the kid must have really been acting up tonight. Right. But now a parent smacks their kid, you know, the cops will probably show up. CIS is at the door and the parent might spend a night in jail. So it's a lot different the way society's changed. The same in sports, Dean. Like the Broad Street Bullies, okay? Like let's say hockey was still like that. So now there's a 24-hour news cycle. You think they could show brawls every two minutes, like when you watch sports center TSN, and they keep replaying? Even when you watch CP24, they keep replaying. To keep replaying brawls and fight, like they can't do that, right? So because because society's changed, like. So it has in sports as well. Things have gotten a little bit softer. That's why the fighting has gone down. You know, the concussion awareness. Everything has changed. So now, with with that also comes when what I find is that racism with children kind of happens the most when kids are trying to identify with themselves. And what I mean by that is at the ages of like twelve. 13, not saying for sure when they're in high school, it could be a couple years before high school. But what you notice is that at school, when the kids get to around grade six, grade seven, they start listening to certain types of music. They start hanging out with certain, you start seeing groups starting to develop. A lot of those groups might kind of have the same type of pigment in those groups. Like you kind of start seeing that. And especially when you get into grade nine, and then people are trying to identify with their backgrounds. Dean, I remember being in grade eight, having friends at my elementary school, then being in grade nine at Pope John Paul. And all of a sudden, my friend has a West Indian accent, bro. I'm like, bro, we were in class together last eight years. And now you have an accent. So people try to like, I don't even, they, they, I guess they gravitate towards their background more once they get a little bit older and they're trying to, trying to, trying to see who they really are. Well, the same thing happens in the dressing room at hockey. That's what, that's what I'm trying to get at. So during that time in the dressing room, groups started forming. Music started being played more and people had their different tastes. I would start hearing comments like, oh, Sean, you don't like this type of music. And I'd be like, well, what do you mean? You know what I mean? And like, So that's when that would kind of start. And I started to kind of feel a little bit different when we started getting a little bit older into that high school era i didn't really receive anything too bad there was a little bit of teasing i knew these kids for a long time so i was in a pretty solid situation even though that's not any teasing is is not acceptable especially if it comes to like race and all that kind of stuff right it's not it's it's not accepted now um the racism that i probably got like really received the most was Actually, when I started playing pro, I, I I really don't know why, but I think it was the role that I played, you know, of being the tough guy Now you have to understand, there's a lot of emotion in the sport. There's a lot of the fans get really into it. Ah, everyone's yelling. Ah, you're so a... Now imagine a guy just pumbling your favorite player, just beating him up. And now you're looking at that guy and you're trying to think of something to say. And you're just like, Oh, I want to kill you. Cause you just beat my guy. Oh, you, you big black or whatever. You know what I mean? They're trying to think of something to say, and then maybe like a racist thing will come out. Right. And then it'll just be like, man, like, I'm just trying to do my job for my team and now I got to deal with all this other stuff. Right. And you know, so, I mean, I just remember my first year pro. I mean, I, 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 I used to try to protect the guy in a way because I'm, I'm like the opposite of a hater. So I don't want people to like, you know, not do well because I said something bad about them or whatever. But there was, there was an incident my first year pro where I fought a gentleman by the name of Peter Vandermeer. very well-known hockey family. His brother, Jim Vandermeer played defense in the NHL for a while, Blackhawks, Philly. So Peter Vandermeer, his brother, who was a tough guy in the AHL. was playing in grand Rapids at the time. And, you know, I beat him up pretty bad. And, you know, he he got up and felt his anger and and yelled the N-bomb. And so the refs heard it. And, you know, he ended up getting a two-game suspension, um, whatever they called it. I'm not sure what it was called. Now, this is back in 2003, right? So this is 20 years ago. A lot, a lot has developed since then with what the penalties are, so on and so forth. So now I remember finding out about it. Um, the next week in one of our practices, we're warming up and Randy Cunnyworth, who was my coach for four years, my favorite coach, um, players coach, you know, he came up to me and he had a really long talk with me, wanted to make sure that I was okay. Um, I didn't really like the way he had like a nickname for him. He's like, you know, Vandy, Vandy got a two game suspension. I was really surprised that Vandy said something like that. Cause I guess Vandy used to play for Rochester a few years before. so. Cunny knew him. I'm just like, Vandy. Like, I'm just like, okay, whatever. But Cunny did take the time. He made me feel comfortable, told me that there was a suspension, asked me if I was okay and if there was anything that I needed or if I need to talk about something to let him know. So I really appreciate Randy Cunnyworth going out of his way when there was a suspension for a racial slur that was said my first year pro. Other than that, Dean, like, I didn't really receive anything else. Now, what I, what I do say is that the type of player I was, I was usually you know, known as the toughest guy in the rink. So if you're a player, you're probably not going to choose to say a racial slur against the, the the roughest guy on the other team. You might say it to a guy that might not be the roughest guy, but to the roughest guy, you might not. So I think I kind of got it a little bit less because of my size. And because of my role, because I could actually retaliate and hurt people, <laughs> if they said something yeah, weird to you, me where, you know, somebody, somebody, you know, like, 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 somebody that's a skilled player might not get that same treatment. Right.
0: But that era in the 2000s, maybe things were getting better in terms of the, uh, the fan reaction, because as much as you wouldn't have been someone that a player would want to cross, you would be very vulnerable for fan abuse.
1: Oh, yeah. And Dean, I mean, and I I, all the guys that I've interviewed, especially guys like, you know, um, Bill Riley, guys like him that that were really, you know, innovators and, and, and really like pioneers, like for us and everyone after them. One of the one of the biggest skills that you learn when you are a unique player per se or like a, like one of the only minorities on the ice one of the biggest skills is is making it look like you didn't hear things pretending or i should say pretending like you didn't hear anything there's a lot of stuff that's said in the background there's a lot of things that are indirectly said and the mental toughness that is involved with pretending like you didn't hear it is a very special tool And it was re it's what I would always do, but it was reinforced when I would interview guys like Bill, Bill Riley, Claude Vilgrain, like some of the old, older school guys that probably I couldn't even imagine. I couldn't even imagine the abuse that they heard from the crowds. And they all said the same thing. I just created a skill that I just pretended like I just didn't hear what was said.
0: Okay. So you're involved with hockey right now. You're wanting to make things better better for players, better for people from all uh, backgrounds to access the game. We do recognize there are some barriers that are financial. We recognize sometimes there are barriers that are cultural. Are you seeing things change um, from, from everyone, the spectators, players, coaches? Like we want this to be a comfortable game. So whatever skin color you are, whoever you are, there should be no reason for someone to be treated differently in terms of the opportunities. So are you seeing some stuff you want to share with us that's happening?
1: Yeah, 100%. I'm lucky enough to be part of one of the leading programs for diversity in hockey and inclusion, uh, the Seaside Hockey Club. So now Seaside Hockey Club, uh, we just finished our second season. And this is a program, Dean, that has been sponsored by the Canadian government that has a program set up for the players uh, to receive free equipment, uh, free registration. And when I talk about free equipment, I'm talking about skates. Dude. I'm talking about everything from head to toe. And the problem, the biggest problem with hockey right now, Dean, is that it's just not accessible to every demographic. And, you know, if you, that team that I did the team mentoring, the Don Mills Flyers, U16 team, the registration for that team dean is $15,000, okay? So, oh, you, you got two kids? Well, oh, $30,000? If if your kids are, good, are blessed to be good enough to play at that level, you got to come up with $30,000? So now you got a single mom that makes $50,000 that's a very respectable salary. Is it even possible for her to try to get her kid in there? Probably not right cuz we're just talking about registration man we're not talking about gas money we're not talking about getting into the rink we're not talking about tournaments we're not talking about you know there's a lot involved so it's not accessible to every demographic so now how do you how do you tackle that and 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 what are your justifications so now dean we we live in in canada right we're, we're supposed to be known as, as the hockey nation right we're we're canada mr hockey you know You know, Wayne Gretzky, we were talking about before. Okay, so that's great. I'm very proud to be living in a hockey nation. But the problem is, Dean, is that as a hockey nation, we don't even recognize where hockey came from. We don't even talk about the Colored Hockey League. We don't even talk about a league that was in our country before the NHL that started the slap shot, that started the goalies moving around. The NHL copied so many things from the league. We don't even acknowledge that. But we're the hockey nation. Does it make sense? No. Does it make sense that as the hockey nation that used to be dominant in hockey, where now every other country is now caught up, you know, it was great that we won the World Juniors and whatnot, but it's not nothing compared to what it used to be like with the domination. Now, why is that? Well, we only let the wealthy kids in our country play. What about everybody else? Seaside hockey has had some players, Dean. That didn't play a few months ago and now are wheeling around the ice, going bar down, doing friggin' the, the Michigan goal. You wouldn't even believe it. So now, what's gonna happen now? Every demographic is now playing. It's not only the rich kids that go to St. Mike's, but it's everybody who's able to play. So is this not going to make our country a little bit better at hockey if everybody has a chance to play instead of just the wealthy kids that can afford to? It's a very simple answer, Dean. So three, four years from now, let's hope it's even less. We're going to have a couple Anthony Stewart's, a couple Chris Stewart's, a couple Wayne Simmonses coming right out of Seaside Hockey. And that's going to make our country stronger, better, and more dominant in hockey the way it used to be. And and organizations like Seaside Hockey, the HDA, Hockey Equality, these organizations are going to be absolutely praised for making Canada the most dominant hockey country once again. I think Sweden has now passed us in the per capita in the NHL. There's more Swedish players per capita than there is Canadian per capita in the NHL now. We used to always be number one. Now we're number two. And we're looking to change that, Dean. We're looking to have everyone have the opportunity to play. Hockey ne- needs to change. If you watch the Black Ice documentary and you listen to those people, when everyone used to play, equipment wasn't even an issue. Everybody had skates, it was accessible. It was our culture. We lost it, Dean. We lost it. It's just the richer people that play now, man. It used to be everybody. And we, we're going to get back to that. And like I said, Seaside, Hockey Equality, HDA, These are the organizations that are going to change the world, especially in Canada for hockey. I'm very excited to be a part of it.
0: Thanks for sharing those examples. I know we're really just kind of regionally talking about the GTA area, and we know this can be anywhere. It can be Ottawa, it can be Winnipeg, it can be Vancouver, it can be the East Coast. Like All these opportunities should be out available to to kids. I think you're just articulating that. It's gonna involve all of us, the corporate community, everyone. And why not? I mean, you talked about all the experiences that hockey gave to you. Not everyone has to make it to the NHL, but just the opportunity of that sport gives us and the choice. Very important. Absolutely, Dean. Maybe you could just share with us um, some advice for the uh for a hockey player joining hockey today, just what advice you would give to them. And 100%. then uh, so I do the also advice- wanna sort of I do also want to mention before we go to that, um, we didn't get much into your podcast called The Sheriff. And I think that's going great, wonderful too. So maybe you can just sort of end off with some advice and then just telling us about your podcast. That'd be wonderful.
1: 100%. So my advice for any young boy or girl wanting to play hockey is go in there with a lot of confidence. Go in there with confidence because every other kid in that dressing room feels the same way as you. You go, you, you, walk, you read the book, The Hockey Jersey, that new book that's out, that Scotiabank is pumping out. And that's a perfect story of people that are unsure of themselves because it's a new sport, but everybody feels the same. Everybody's a family in the dressing room. So you go in there, you're confident, you're going to have the time of your life, you're going to learn skills that will benefit you for the rest of your life. The mental toughness that you'll develop, Everything else that comes with it, there's there's nothing that it's compared to. It's absolutely priceless experience. So I recommend every boy and girl in Canada to try playing hockey. Try to play it. You will succeed. You will you will develop, and you and most importantly, you're gonna have fun. So. I think that everybody should try it out, especially with the programs now. If you haven't heard of Seaside Hockey Equality or the HDA, please look it up because it's really, really helpful organizations to get started. And, you know, I'm seeing some of the kids get started now and I'm so proud of them at their development. It just puts a big smile on my face. Now the Sheriff podcast, my friend, um, it's very exciting right now because we actually, we actually have, um, The biggest free agent in the world, literally the biggest free agent in the world, Mr. Liam McMorrow, my youngest brother, just got his green card approved and he's been stuck in the States for about 18 months. Um, He's a 10 year basketball veteran, pro basketball veteran, and he is going to make a huge announcement on Thursday night at Bottom Line, my next show. Um, So everybody should tune in. And uh, it's going to be very exciting stuff. But I've, I have 160 episodes, Dean. Um, um, the platforms that they're on is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, pretty much anywhere where you can listen to podcasts. Um, I do have a YouTube channel called The Sheriff Podcast. My last 20 or so episodes have actually been live recordings at Bottom Line Studio in downtown Toronto. Very professional setting. Um, we've had incredible times, very entertaining. Um, I've had some really, really interesting guests. And the greatest thing for me is I get to interview a lot of my heroes, a lot of the people that I looked up to. Uh, I it, it brings me closer to my family. And it's been a really cool experience. And it's actually my running resume for, um, for this incredible sports broadcasting career that I will be starting in the very near future, my friends. So this is just my getting prepared for that. And um, I'm excited about life. Um, I feel that I'm a go-getter. And I want to do anything for the better good. And I plan on being a very good motivational speaker. I want to be a big character on TV. And I want to be a world-class sports broadcaster. And I'm always going to remember people like Dean Barnes who helped me get there by giving me a platform.
0: So I appreciate it. Well, Sean, this has been uh, great. Wish we we could spend – well, I know we could spend more time, but – All right. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Sean. I know you're busy, guys. So take care. We're proud to be working with Hockey Equality. Hockey Equality is on a mission to create diversity at all levels of the game of hockey by lowering financial barriers for BIPOC female and other equity-deserving youth hockey players. If you've been moved by the stories shared on this podcast and want to help make hockey accessible to all, check out HockeyEquality.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to share this story with your kids, then check out My Hockey Hero. It's shorter and suitable for the whole family. You can click the link in the show notes or find it wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Podstarter production.